Josh asked me to do this, I had a couple of things in mind, and I ended up with a message that uh, stemmed from my Sunday school class. We spent uh, two Sunday mornings talking about the Word of God, and it just really weighed upon me that there was a message here that needed to be delivered. So we're, we're going to start. Uh, first thing I better do is say happy anniversary to my wife, Jackie. 26 years ago today, she became my wife and the queen of my world. Thank you. So to the, this evening, I plan on speaking about the Bible from the Bible. Um, many different paths we could take here. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn over there. But uh, Joss and Jason have spent numbers of Sundays and Wednesday evenings standing before you proclaiming that this is the inerrant, infallible, and there's a list of adjectives you can put in there, word of God. It's unchangeable. It's perfect. And... Um, I ask myself, what does this mean? And I'm not talking about the inerrant, infallible part. That's the easy part. It's not going to fail you. There are no errors in it. What I'm talking about is the Word of God part. What does that mean? And um, through some of the questions that was asked in the Sunday school class, and it's really, really interesting of all the things to, to baffle me, this became something in our discussions that just really weighed on me. We, we live in a world where we find ourselves saying things like, well, why doesn't God just tell me what he wants me to do? Why won't he just let me know what his will is in this? And I, w I wish he'd just put me a post-it note on my mirror during the night and I would get up in the morning and I would know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And it sounds like a clear pathway, a clear message that God could convey to us. But I think being the father that he is, he wants us to be able to find guidance on our own sometimes. His guidance. But to find it on our own. And when we go through that, we have to understand that this is the word of God. This is God's word from the front to the back. And it's guidance, it's bold guidance for us to live by. And there's a, a debate going on now that Josh and I have been talking about and reading about. We're under grace, we're under law, and where does all this tie together? And The bottom line is this is God's Word. In this Bible, it covers almost every topic that we could ever have interest in, have questions about. Any decisions you have to make in your life, any problems, burdens you run into, there's information here to be shared, and this is how he wants us to handle those things. This is the way that we should be guiding, living our lives through those things. And Lord knows I have failed him in many, many ways um, <clears throat> going down that path. So when I say it covers almost every topic, this is one reason why we should be reading our Bible daily. Because we want to know the answers to all these mysteries of life, Right? We want to know, do I go left or do I go right? And those Matrix fans out there could say, do I take the red pill or the blue pill? But when, when, we, when we go through life, look at decisions we have to make. And I believe in sovereignty, and I'm, I'm Calvinist far more than most people are comfortable with. But we make decisions every day. And those decisions should be by his counsel. So we need to read daily, that way we can know what is in here and we can, we can understand where do I go to find this. And I remember reading when I was, and it's over here, and let me, and you've at least got some idea of where to go and look. And then the more you study, the more you come, become convinced that the book of John is about this and that the, the book of Ezekiel or the book of Genesis, and it was in the book of Exodus that the Bible talked about. And you can more readily find those answers. The more you know, the more you study, the more you do. The sad thing is that sometimes we deny the true teaching of the Bible. 
Sometimes it's black and white, and we don't do that. And God gave us this direction of how we should do and what we should do. So if we don't become familiar with what's in the Bible and where different things are in the Bible, we're going to have a real hard time finding the answers, and we're going to end up with a concordance this big and hours of digging, and you get frustrated, and then you read it, and you're not sure. I encourage you to read, read your Bible. The general context here is that life's questions are answered in the Bible. And I've got to admit, in Deuteronomy, it talks about the secret things being God's, and there are secret things that you're not going to find the answer to here. And we're going to let those belong to God, but those not-so-secret things are in here. Those not-so-secret guidances are here for us to find and to abide by. So... Uh, I intend to cover three areas of scripture. Fourth, if you want to count the last one a little bit, it won't take long. I'm going to unpack these verses some. And we're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I've stood up here and run my mouth and didn't flip over here. And these are pretty familiar passages to most of us. If you would, uh, please stand. For the reading of God's infallible, inerrant, immutable, eternal word. Hey, like that, John. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, we bow our heads before you. We're asking for your guidance and your help here as we discuss your word and how much we need it in our lives, Lord, and how much we need to understand it. Please allow your words to be spoken this evening. and. Give everyone here in attendance the ears to hear what you'd have us to hear. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. So in verse 16, you can be seated. In, the, in verse 16, it starts out with all scripture. And when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he didn't have this. Okay, when he wrote this letter to Timothy, the Old Testament is what he had. And when the apostles went out spreading the gospel, they spread it from the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They were living and writing the New Testament. So when Paul says here that all scripture, he's talking about everything in that Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, from the first verse to the last, all of this is the scripture. All of it is inspired by God, it goes on to say. All, not just some or part. And uh, we can talk about even those begot verses. The verses where the temple's being described with all the dimensions and the censuses that were taken. But all of it is inspired by God. All of it has meaning and all of it has its place and all of it has, has its teaching. The Bible gives us various ways and means. It tells us what to do, what not to do, things to consider. It tells us that this is a high a hill that you need to die on. The Bible will tell you this hill isn't worth dying on. But the Bible is inspired. It's inspired by God. This word is is one of the most fascinating words, and it's two letters, and we use it a thousand times a day, and none of us can give, you, give us a definition for what it means. If I ask you to get a piece of paper out and write out the definition for is, could you do it? If you can, it's not normal. But the word is means exist in the state of. The bicycle is red. The bicycle exists in the state of being red. The word is has importance because it tells you that there's a state that this is existing in. And then we go to the word inspired, and you break that up, and you've got the word in, and you've got the word spire. In means into, spire from respiration means breathe. And then we, we see that it's 
inspired by God. Well, what this is saying is, is that the Bible exists in the state of being breathed into existence by God. God breathed all of Scripture into existence. That's what that means. There's uh, one particular pastor that I listen to from time to time that says, God wrote a book. And uh, I like that saying, but it's not exactly right. But this is God's Word. One could easily state that God who is true, from the book of Romans, in chapter 3, He breathed out truth. Josh just, just, just read this in John seventeen seventeen. God who is true breathed out truth. He used men of faith, holy men the Bible calls it, to record the events that they saw, the things that occurred, He used their personalities, their emotions, their characteristics, their viewpoint, and the Holy Spirit guided them in what to write to capture exactly what needed to be said in the original documents. It wasn't like they sat there and took dictation while God told them what to write. This was from their heart. This was from their soul. When, when we think about this, this, this should sound familiar to us, God's word, God spoke, because God spoke everything into existence, right? Let there be was the words. Let there be light. He parted the waters. He created us, all the animals. Spoke it into existence. The book of Ezekiel, we have a a very, very popular, well-known set of verses in the book of Ezekiel that talks about the valley of dry bones. And God asked the prophet, can, can these bones live? And the prophet was kind of like, I don't know, they're pretty darn dry. I don't know, God, you know. What, what do you... And God puts these bones back together and begins to put muscle on them and it calls it sinew. I'm assuming this is tendons and cartilage and circulatory systems and skin and hair and fingernails and, and, and brings these back into existence as people, but they were not alive. They were not alive until he breathed life into them. Breathed life into these dry bones. That's a story of regeneration for us. A heart of stone that became a heart of flesh. We can remember Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, Receive the Holy Spirit. And I can only in my imagination think about what that looked like. But this was a precursor to the coming of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was going to come in and indwell the believers and breathe that into them. And how many times the Holy Spirit is referred to as being like the wind. And when we breathe, we're moving the air. And we got the story of Lazarus. And I'm going to get back to the scripture here in a minute. But, and and it, it amazes me. The story of Lazarus is just a fascinating story from many aspects. But um, in the first place, you got Lazarus who's alive. He got sick. He died. Jesus shows up on the scene. Martha says, if you'd been here... My brother wouldn't have died. If you'd been here, Jesus, that's a statement of faith that has a sternness to it, but if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus approaches the tomb and tells him to roll the stone back. He's been dead for four days and says, Lazarus, come forth. Well, here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. All wrapped up. I'm sure he looked something like a mummy. If Jesus had not said Lazarus and had just said, come forth, the place would have emptied. There have been people coming out there that nobody knew who they were. And then you think about poor Lazarus. And Bodie Bauckham talked about this one time and I just had to laugh within myself. 
She got Lazarus, he got sick, he suffered, and he died. And when you're absent from the body, you're with the presence of God. So he went to, to heaven, paradise, Abraham's bosom, whatever you call that spiritual state that he's in the presence of God. And I'm sure he's sitting there enjoying the presence of God, right? I mean, he, he's sitting there having time of his life. And all of a sudden he comes to his senses and he's back in this tomb. What'd you do that for? He didn't say that in the scriptures, but I have to think, my goodness. Here I am back on this earth and I was just spent four days with the king. And then he gets to die again and go back through that whole process later on. God's word has a lot of power. If we go back to the, back to the verse, all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we come to this word profitable, which is a financial term, and it means value is added to something. There is more worth now than there was. Something is more effective and we ask, what, what is this profitable? What, what was it profitable for? And it goes on to tell us for teaching. The scripture is profitable for teaching. And what, what is this? Teaching is educating the ignorant or the unlearned. And I say ignorant with a sense of respect. Someone who doesn't know. It's shoring up existing beliefs. It's gaining understanding where gaps may exist. It's God is subtly stating that we need to learn when this is said. Right? For teaching, we need to learn. It goes on to say, for reproof. This is a rebuke. It's a rebuke, a rebuke for those in sin, especially if you're a believer. Scolding in a sharp manner. And I'm going to make a little comparison for you here because it's just really an observation in my reading that I've come across. When, when Jesus was dealing with unbelieving people, and we think about the woman at the well, we think about the woman caught in adultery, we even think about the rich young ruler, and the list could go on. These are people who did not believe. Some of them even came into him wanting to know, what do I have to do to be saved? And he dealt with them very mildly. He didn't deal with them sternly. These are unbelievers. They do not know. We should not expect them to know. We should explain to them. There may come a time when sternness is required, but that should not be our first step. But then when we look at Jesus witnessing to those who were believers and even leaders of the church, you heard words like dead men's bones, brood of vipers. John the Baptist even used some of this terminology. And there was a lot more rebuke or reproof toward those who were believers and could be held accountable. And we see some of this in First Peter, and you can turn there if you like, I'm not going to, but First uh, Peter chapter 3 verse 15 is a verse that's meant a lot to me of late, particularly in these days of wokeness, that basically says we should live our lives in such a way that people ask us what it is within us that causes us to have such hope. And the verses just before this, Peter's talking about suffrage, the suffrage of Christians. And even though you're in this suffrage, in this state of persecution, in this state of trial, this is how you should witness. You should live your life in ways that people want to ask, what is it that's within you? And he goes on after that verse to talk about using many of those same fruits of the spirits that we hear about in Galatians and that Josh has gone over in Titus and other books of loving kindness and peacefulness and mercy. This is how we're to address these people. Like I said, there may come a time where sternness is required, but that's not our first option. We need to treat these people with love, and this world needs, I don't want to sound corny here, but the world does need love. And God is love, right? So, so when we think about reproof, we're thinking about a, rebu a rebuke. 
We go on, it says, for correction, and that is uh, leading those in error to truth. That's one of those scenarios where you say, don't take my word for it, take God's word for it. Look it up for yourself. This is correction. And then we have for training, which is similar to teaching, but there is a difference. It's like the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Training and teaching. Knowing what to do comes from teaching. Knowing how to do it comes from training. Teaching, and I think about when Jackie went back to college and she took all these classes to get her RN. Teaching is anatomy and biology and all these different things. And you walk away from there with all this knowledge, but training begins with the residency. Training begins when you really have the patient in front of you. You have a doctor guiding you. You're really learning how to handle those scenarios. And if we look back one verse, and and Paul is, is writing this to Timothy, he makes a statement here. It says, And that from childhood you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy grew up in the word. This tells me that the word is a mechanism for salvation. The word of God is a mechanism for salvation. And it struck me funny a few weeks ago when we went through that, Jerry, Vicki, you all been in that class that the word is saving people. And it just, for some reason, struck me a little bit funny. So I got to digging back, and I've always been taught to back Scripture up with Scripture, so I I got to digging, and I went to Romans 10 and verse 17, and it says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith, hearing, word of God, word of Christ. And I went to 1 Peter 1.23, and it talks about being born again of the Word. In Romans 1.16, once, once again, and Josh just covered this, we're talking about the Gospel and the Word. And this book teaches that it has the power to save. It has the power to save the lost who are going to spend eternity in hell. This book right here has the ability to save the world. And that's just power. That's just... And it has the power to do many things. God's Word has the power to create, right? The same Word of God that spoke the universe into existence is written in these pages. Same Word. The power to heal lepers, the blind from birth. Many, many examples are given to you. You may know a few examples of your own where someone the doctors had basically given up hope on and somehow they came out of it and they were recovering and they recovered and they went on living their life and there's nothing to attribute that to but they were healed by some form of miracle of God. He could have done that by one word by one word the power to raise the dead we talked about Lazarus earlier but Jesus Christ himself the Holy Spirit God the Father this is the word of God the Bible is God speaking directly to you you want to know what God thinks about it it's in here The same God is speaking to us right now, and it's imperative that we be receptive to his word. It's critical that we do. It should be no surprise that God's word has the power to save. I shouldn't have been astonished by it, but I just was. It just took me aback in that moment. That this book, I call it the manual. Anytime you gain something of importance, you get a manual with it. Nothing more important than salvation to me. 
my manual. I heard Mitch, and he's not here, I heard him the other day talking about it's an old saying, but the basic instructions before leaving earth, Bible. And there's some truth in that. I don't like acronyms. I work at Eastman, I hear too many of those all the time. But this is the manual. It tells us how to live our life. So we've discussed many ways God's word can be used, and there's another way we need to discuss. And if you will, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. And this verse is going to be quite familiar to you. Should be. You know how to keep Galatians, Ephesians, those in order, right? That's like GE Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, okay? Ephesians 6, starting with verse 11. I'm just going to go ahead and start at 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. As I read through this, this is the description of a Roman soldier. All this is what they typically wore before they went into battle. And I find it very interesting that we're given one weapon and one weapon alone. And that is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And this full armor of God should be used to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But what do these schemes look like? And who is it that's doing these schemes? And how should we be, what should we be looking for? So let's look at verse 12 real closely again here. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Who are the rulers? I think that it's a safe crowd here for me to say that our current administration is imposing things upon the Christian people that we don't necessarily agree with. Rulers, right? I don't think anyone in here thinks that drag queen story hours for kids is a good idea. But it's supposed to be normalized now. Transgenderism is supposed to be normalized now. I really like the one. We can and will change the weather. God help them. They think they can turn back the hurricane somehow. Climate change, right? And then it goes on to say against authorities. What are authorities? We talked about rulers. What's the difference between a ruler and an authority? Let's answer that with a question. How many churches were shut down during the pandemic? And who did it? CDC, State Departments of Health, the World Health Organization, people named Fauci. These are authorities. They're not rulers. They're not elected officials. They're not emperors or Caesars or kings or presidents, but they are authorities. And what kind of perversions have been introduced into the public school system and who introduced these? Was it the Department of Education? Was it the State Department of Education? Was it the teachers' unions? Was it the local principals and teachers? Pick one, they're all authorities. Someone in that group allowed a lot of this nonsense into the school system. Who was the ones that kicked prayer out of schools? It's been a travesty ever since that happened. 
They don't even say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. But we got time for all this woke stuff. And it goes on to say against world forces of this darkness. And, and it, took me, it took me a minute or two to wrap my arms around this. But when we think about world forces of this darkness, we're talking about the entertainment industry. The media, the news media. In my opinion, the news media is corrupted on both sides of the aisle. I'm more on the, the Fox News side than not. But there are times I really shake my head at the TV on that channel. And it goes on to say, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And all of this that we're talking about is being generated from wicked forces in spiritual or heavenly places. And, and I think the simple word that you put here in parentheses, is demonic activity. Now, I'm not talking about exorcisms and haunted houses and Halloween coming up. You know, they had Halloween stuff out at the store the other day, and I went in it. CVS. I knew you'd like that, Jack. But demonic activity. In the, the ancient days of Mesopotamia, there was a god that was worshipped named Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R. This was a god of fertility, a god of erotic behaviors. Had its own temple, idol in the temple. And, it, and depending on the different pictures that I saw, some had a body of a man and a head of a woman. Some were vice versa, body of a female and the head of a male. And it's recorded that the priest cross-dressed. The men would wear women's clothing and the women in, that served in the temples would wear men's clothing. And all these people were worshipping at the altar of Ishtar. Very possible that the same demon that was pushing that in that day is behind what we've got going on today. I can't sit here and show you that in the scripture. But it don't take a fool to realize we're calling things normal that are so far from normal it's scary. It's demonic. Now, if we go back to the verses that we read, and we're going to combat with demons. We're going to go to war against the rulers, the authorities, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We need to be prepared for such an event. We're going to war against the administration with this. Are you ready? We are to be on point to hold our presidents, our authorities, our rulers accountable to this. God put them there for the purpose of good, to maintain order in the civil society. And it really seems like of late we've had less and less of that than we've ever seen. Civil order has no meaning anymore. So if we're going to do this, we really need to be practiced up. My youngest son is in the Navy, and I think about snipers, and they shoot thousands of rounds of ammunition in preparation before they go on a mission. I watch Nate shoot bows and arrows, and he'd go and shoot in these local competitions. It was kind of a big deal to him. But was, and he would practice and get to where he could shoot a quarter at 20 yards and hit it half the time. I was pretty impressed. It took practice. And I'm sure the same is with martial arts or even hand grenades, I'm going to assume. If we're going to go to war, we need practice. We need to be reading our word. We need to be studying our word. To be truly skilled, you need to spend time reading this and knowing this and understanding this. Something that I'm trying to do with whatever level of success. My wife is reading through the Psalms and I ordered her some commentaries to, to use. And I've heard so many people say you need to try praying in the Psalms. You need to try praying in the Psalms. It's real. Never have been a huge fan of the Psalms. 
as far as study material or whatever, you really need to try praying in them. The Word of God is referred to as a weapon in another part of the Bible. So we're going to flip over here to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of background while we go there. What are we doing on time here? I knew it was going to run short. The book of Hebrews starts in, uh, of course, with chapter 1. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 spends a lot of time saying, God speaks. What does God say? God having spoken, chapter 1, verse 1. Spoke to us in his Son, chapter 1, verse 2. By the word of his power, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, he says, he says, chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8. And on and on it goes through chapter 3. And then you come to chapter 4, and somehow out of place it starts talking about the Sabbath. Verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But that's so out of place. It's just so mysterious. that We were talking about what God says and all these things, and then all of a sudden we're talking about the Sabbath. We're in the New Testament. The ceremonial law is done. But here we are talking about the Sabbath. And then we go to verse 12. Sorry, I got to run in my mouth. And it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's start to unpack this verse. The first word we've got here is for. And if you go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, there's about 20 definitions for the word for, and you've got to pick the right one. We don't know what the word for means, do we? We use it all the time, but we don't know what that means. So I've got to go look it up. The word for here means in consideration of this. And you can say in consideration of the previous ten verses, in consideration of the previous three chapters. So you've got some decisions to make here. But the for means in consideration of. And the previous verses are discussing Psalm 95 and the the need to be obedient to God and His Word. Let's go on. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, also translated quick and powerful. You've heard of the quick and the dead. Quick means living, alive. Active and powerful are synonymous in the translations. And it's really interesting to me that these are also attributes of Jesus Christ. Living. Jesus is the living one who has life in himself and he is Lord of life to, the, to all the people. Powerful. It's a power that's actual power. It's power acted or exerted. It was necessary to manifest that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, would effectually put forth His power. His power in Jesus Christ does not lie idle. It is not useless, but continually exercising itself toward us. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Steve Lawson, and I stole this shamelessly because it's just great. Steve Lawson says, there are none sharper. This is the ultimate keen blade in existence forever. It cannot be dulled in its effectiveness. It cuts both ways. And I said, it cuts both ways. It's a two-edged sword, so that must be back and forth. And he went on to explain that both ways is that it convicts and it comforts. And he's great with these dualities. I mean, it just... It tears down and it builds up. It heals and it hardens. It slays and it makes alive. It saves and it damns. It comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. This two-edged sword is an assault weapon and it should not be taken lightly. It's the only weapon he gave us. We need to be good with it. And no wonder the author of Hebrews goes on to state that this sword is piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow because the word of God penetrates or it pierces us in our soul, in our innermost being, into our recesses, the secret chambers of our heart. And Jesus Christ does this same work. 
The author continues to build up on this, stating that the word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this means basically that where someone's efforts may appear to be righteous and genuine in every way, that this word, it can sift through the fluff what appears to be righteous and truly put the fire to it and determine is it righteous or not. The intentions of your heart. Did you do it for some glory that might come to you? Why did you do this good deed? It's going to be judged. And Jesus is that judge and this word does that work as well. I want you to see what happens in 13, and I'm I'm going to close shortly after this. But in verse 13, it starts with the word and, which means all this before this is connected to verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Is his capitalized in your own translation of the Bible? When were we talking about Jesus? We've been talking about the Word of God. We've been talking about the Sabbath. And then we're talking about God speaking. There's no no creature hidden from His sight. All things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of Him whom we have an account to give. It's Jesus, right? So I find myself sitting here at the house going, Is this Jesus? And I'm not trying to make a mockery here, but the, the symbolism, the similarities between the work of the Word of God and the work of Jesus Christ are so similar in some ways. And even those verses talking about the Sabbath, as I really got to looking into it, it's talking about His rest, capital H. And it came to me like a a ton of whatever and turn over to Matthew Matthew 12 8 and read that because it says for the son of man is lord of the sabbath it's all about Jesus here this is his word they're working together and admittedly I didn't take time to do a deep study in all, all of the sabbath but uh, it's, at the minimum, there's a sense of holy irony here. Some people here this evening may look at me and think, man, he is confused and made a mess of this, but I want you to turn over to John chapter 1 with me. You think this is a mess. You know what they call Jesus, right? John chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Words capitalized. Right? Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. We already talked about Jesus being the living one, bringing life to all people. Jesus the Word. Simply put, Jesus is the Word made flesh. And yes, it could be that the Bible is doing some of Jesus' work here on earth until He returns. It could be the Holy Spirit is working in this as well. Christ is going to be a judge and this Bible very well is the standard that they can be put up against. Do you truly understand that when, the Holy, when you read the Holy Scripture silently at home and you hear this voice in your mind as you read, that is God speaking to you when you do that. That is His Word being brought forth to you. I'm standing here today and I'm nobody. Josh and I were talking about Paul Washington. He made us feel like naval lint. and I'm that guy. I'm nobody. 
But as long as I stay between these leather bindings and I read these words and I speak about these words, I'm speaking the Word of God and you're hearing God speak. And it's nothing to me. I'm nobody. I'm a piece of conduit at best. So when this word is read from the pulpit, you're hearing God speak, and I hope that you understand that. And no matter who the speaker is, if they're staying within the bindings, it's God speaking. And I've got to be honest with you, it took me a little while to realize why Josh puts so much emphasis on this expository preaching thing. And he's talking to me about it for a good while now. And I went to California with him and Squirrel and Richard and sat in the front of an abundance of, of speakers who all of them are preaching in this manner and it just really kind of sunk in that hey you need to check this out because these guys are doing what Second Timothy says to preach the word I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff about my life 20 years ago that may or may not have application you need to hear the word you want to see people saved you need to use the word you need to spread the gospel you want to have an outreach Use this. The only time you'll ever know that you're right about anything is when you're in this. And this is just a book in and of itself. It's, this one's got leather and it's got paper and glue and ink. And in and of itself, you could throw it in the fire and it would burn. You could leave it out in the rain. It'd be damaged to the point you couldn't use it. But the words that are written in here and the things that you can take away from this book are eternal. You can stand on them forever. I'm skipping over a few things because we're about out of time. Um, I'm going to turn over to John chapter 8, verse 31, and wrap things up with that. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And this word abide is of ultimate importance here because this word abide means remain. If you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And this isn't just talking about reading your Bible once a week or every day. This is talking about living your life in such a way that every decision that you make, every corner that you go around, every person that you talk to, you're doing it with, between the bindings of this manual and what it teaches us. That's not to say that we need to turn into monks and sit around and read the Bible all day and do nothing else. It's not what I'm talking about. This is talking about living your life the way this book tells us that we should live it. It's our guide. It's bold guidance. If you want to truly, without a doubt, for sure, be one of Christ's disciples, you should live every day between those bindings. Try to live every minute of every day. And you can do these funny things in grammar. You correct me if I'm wrong, okay? But uh, you can do what you can call an inversion of the statement. And you start playing with double negatives and things of that nature. But the inverse, inversion of this statement says, If you do not abide in my word, you are not truly my disciple. This is hard teaching. We live in a time of antinomianism where the people think they can walk down the altar and pray a ten-word prayer and they're saved and they can leave that church and live their life for hell from then on. One of the biggest lies that's ever been told is, yeah, now you're saved. Have a good game. And they live their life thinking that they're saved because they have eternal security and they're living their life for hell. And it's a scary thing that we got people out there thinking that they're saved and they're not because they've been misled by 
a teaching that just isn't true. My dad was a free will Baptist pastor. I've seen more of those altar calls than probably everybody in here put together. The thought that those people were improperly taught that now you're saved. You've got nothing to worry about. If you want to truly be his disciple, remain in his word. We should love his word as never before. We need to recognize that this is God's means of revealing himself to us. Listen, folks, we're living in a time where many of the churches today are in denial of this word. And if this word has errors in it, if there's one, it's all questionable at that point. And we're at loss because our salvation depends upon this. And it's of utmost important that we understand it. And there are many connections between Jesus and Christ, Jesus Christ and the Bible. And no, just, in, just for clarity, I don't think this is Jesus Christ. But at the same time, their works are very similar. The things that they do are hand in hand. I thank you for your attention. I'm going to cut off right here. It's an honor to stand before you. Thank you for allowing me to do that. I don't feel a need to be a preacher or a pastor, but I love the word. I love to learn, take these strength finder tests, and the top three in every strength finder test I've ever taken is that I'm a learner. Out of 50 possible categories, every time in the top three, learner is up there at the top three. I love to learn. I love the little Sunday school class that we have and the questions that we ask and the things we talk about. I love the Lord, and I'm thankful. So let us pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word. Father, we pray for your help. And that you will use the Holy Spirit to help us grow in your word. Father, we pray that you will help us apply your word. Help us apply it to our lives. Help us to recognize your son in the word. Help us, Father, as we believe that we need your help in our unbelief. Psalm 119 reads, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the response is by keeping it according to your word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all that you've done in my life and the lives of those here. I thank you for each individual that's present here this evening and, and pray that you will bless them richly. Father, deliver us back here safely at the next appointed time. We love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, and all God's children said, amen. Uh, you are dismissed.